0: Well, good morning again. It's lovely to be back with you here in St. Peter's for this morning's service. Thank you very much again for your welcome. And it's a great privilege to partner with you in this really tangible way. It's not as tangible as as gathering together and shaking hands and having a conversation. But down in St. Andrews, we pray regularly for you as a church family up here. We're thankful for how the Lord is keeping you. And it's just a privilege to be able to play a a small part in, in being with you in this way. I hope that you've been finding our studies in the Sermon on the Mount both encouraging and challenging uh, hopefully and, and prayerfully that's going to be the reality for us this morning as we zoom in on the Lord's Prayer. You might remember if you were listening in last week, uh, but even if this is your first time with us and with St. Peter's, you're hugely welcome. Don't worry if you've, you've missed some stuff. We're zooming in now to the middle of the section we looked at last week. We, we looked at chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, and we noticed in passing that the Lord's Prayer, this famous, famous part of God's Word, perhaps one of the most famous, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, sticks out slightly in the flow of how Jesus has been teaching. He, he almost double taps on it, like you would on your phone screen or tablet, to zoom in on the central reality of prayer. Before we consider anything more about the structure of the prayer and dive into it, why don't we pray together? It would be an odd thing to not pray, given what we're thinking about. So let's speak to our Father in heaven, the one who hears us and loves us, and ask for his help. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this part of your word that we've just had read to us. We thank you for the wonderful teaching of Jesus Christ, your Son. And we pray this morning that as we are taught by him how to pray, we ask, Father, that you would change our hearts, bring us in line with what you would have us be, help us to love what you love, to hate what you hate, to be utterly devoted to you and totally dependent upon you, and we ask that you would do that in us by your spirit, for we know that we cannot, by our own strength, Make ourselves as you would have us be. Work with us graciously, Father. Change us lovingly, we ask it, and move us powerfully for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, as I've already uh, hinted at, the the Lord's Prayer is something that sits right at the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the the middle of chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, though it is that, it sits bang in the middle. It is the middle of the main section of the Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter 5 verse 17 and runs on through to chapter 7 verse 12. And it is therefore what one theologian has called the center of the center of the center of this sermon. It is therefore something that lies right at the heart of the Christian life. Because Jesus here, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been seeing, has been teaching his disciples how to live as kingdom people. What their hearts should look like before God, in meekness and humility and in sorrow over sin and in hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's been teaching us how we are to live with the people with whom we share this world, in love even for our enemies, in generosity, in self-control. Last week, we saw how the disciple is to be one who lives in this world absolutely fixated upon pleasing God before pleasing others. And Jesus, in every way then, is showing us how we are to live now as citizens of God's kingdom that is to come. And Last week, we saw that the, the three main areas for Jesus' followers where this devotion to God was going to work itself out, was in their giving, was in their praying, and in their fasting. Prayer in the middle now is expanded by Jesus. You can see in chapter 6, verse 7, that we just had read to us, Jesus departs from the structure that he had been teaching in. Uh, He said in verse 2, don't be like the hypocrites when you give. He says in verse 5, don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. He will say in verse 16, don't be like the hypocrites when you fast. Only with prayer... Does he intensify his teaching? Verse 7, and when you pray. It's as though it's a drop-down menu, and he goes into more detail now on what this life of prayer is to be like. And you know, we have a wonderful privilege then as we, as we listen to Jesus here. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, as it has come to be called, is a divinely taught expression of the divinely commanded attitude towards God in prayer that we're all to have. We're listening in to the words of Jesus the Son, who knew perfect relationship with his Father, teaching us as his younger siblings, with his arm around us as it were, how we too now speak to our Father in heaven. Uh, That's a long way of saying that we really need to listen to what Jesus is saying. It's a wonderful privilege And my own prayer as we work through this now for our next chunk of time together is that this prayer is something that will school our minds in what to pray, that will train our lips in how to pray, but above all will shape our hearts in a desire to pray. We're going to structure our our thoughts on Uh, the prayer this morning in uh, two main ways. I can honestly say that I've never had as many sermon outlines as I was working through preparing this. The Lord's Prayer is is something of almost, well, of infinite depth. Um, But it strikes me that we are first to pray in total devotion to God, and then in the second half we'll see that we pray in total dependence upon God. First, though, this is a prayer of total devotion to God because it is a prayer that arises from who God is. It is a prayer that is clearly about God and not man, speaking to God as he is and as we are in relation to him. That's why this is the the non-hypocritical prayer that Jesus' followers are to offer. It's not worried about what people are thinking but only what God is thinking. That's why in verse seven, Jesus says, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. That's the way of the world. That's the way of man pleasing. Just as the Gentiles, the pagans, Jesus is speaking of those who do not know God as father, they related to their gods as though they were just big politicians, people who you could speak loads of words to really fast and do lots of stuff for and almost arm wrestle them into blessing you. Jesus says, no, 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 it's not like that with God. Don't be like them. Why, verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And that is the first thing that leaps out and necessarily anchors and drives the prayer. It is the identity of God himself as our father. The God of the universe throughout scripture reveals himself as the Trinity, father, son, and spirit. It's the Father who is the source, the fountain of all good gifts. It's he who in love sends Jesus the Son so that we by the uniting work of the Spirit might be brought into the very family of God himself. And that's why it's appropriate and right and fitting to speak to God the Father as the main goal of prayer. He is the fountain head and so prayer arises from him. Now there are scriptural examples of Prayer directed to Jesus the Son, and both He and the Spirit, as divine persons, are are appropriate recipients of our prayers. But the normal way, Jesus says, that the regular way, as it were, a Christian will pray, is to the Father. And given that this is the Word of the Son, with whom the Father is well pleased, and to whom we must listen, we should take His Word for it. And it's because that the Fatherhood of God is the most glorious revelation of His love and character and it is the most sure foundation on which we build a prayerful heart and mouth jesus will take his statement of verse 8 there that the father knows what we need and he'll elaborate on that later on he'll teach us that god is the one who knows what we need and loves to give us good things in the end of chapter 7 sorry the middle of chapter 7 he will say that if even human fathers who are evil know to give good things to their children well, how much more will the good God? And that is a truth that we must press into as believers individually, as we listen to this, but also as God's people together, as a church here in Dundee or for us down in St. Andrews, to trust and live into that truth. For the more we do that, the more our heart will be moved to dependent prayer. We said last week that God is not a ready-to-disapprove headmaster, but a a poised-to-reward father, one who is in heaven. But it is sometimes in our prayer lives, in the the stammerings of our lips, or even the silence of our tongues, that we can betray we have a negative view of God. If you'll permit me to speak very personally, I know that for a long while I felt, especially in my secret prayer, my, my inward prayer on my own, as it were, that I needed somehow to make those prayers sound great, uh, to make them sound weighty, uh, whether that was with very proper language or with very high-blown sentiments. That wasn't because I consciously thought that God needed to be impressed, but I think just a certain view of God that I had, had picked up. But meditating on the truth that God is my Father in heaven, that he is our Father in heaven, it, it was that, that that unlocked my tongue, as it were. I, I felt more able to speak informally, Uh, particularly in, in times of struggle, to voice the very simple lament of, Father, this is really hard, even spoken out loud. That drew me into a more sustained and honest expression of my own soul's griefs than trying to foster convoluted sentences. You see, to give a really simple definition of prayer, we could say that it is loving and believing speech to God. Loving and believing speech to God. Prayer are the words of believers to their father. So you could pray quietly in your head. You can pray voiced out loud. You can pray formally. You can pray informally. We have wonderful saints in our congregation who will address God in terms of thee and thou. And those who will address him in shorts and flip-flops who wouldn't even know the difference between thee and thou if it hit them over the head with a spade. You see, whoever we are, we speak to God as our father, arising from a knowledge of who he is and simply taking him at his word. Faith, that he is our father in heaven who wants to hear us as his children. And who God is, is behind every line of this prayer. And I mean that literally. You see, if meditation on God the father was not enough, Behind everything that the believer is to say, we can see a truth about God. There's almost a a year's worth of systematic theology just in the Lord's Prayer about who God is. Look, Look down with me. Not only is he our Father who is in heaven, he is the holy God whose name is to be hallowed. He's pure and separate from us, unlike us in his blazing holiness and otherness. He's the ruling God who has a kingdom. He's the sovereign God whose will will be done. He is the providing God who gives his children what they need, physically and spiritually in this world. He's the forgiving God who stands ready to forgive the sins of his people. He's the protecting God who guards. He is the good God who is not tainted by or involved in evil. Every single line of this prayer then is is driven by a glorious attribute of God himself, And that's why it's devoted to him, for as we contemplate him in his perfections, so we pray to him. And as we pray to him, we we better grasp his perfections and his love for us. And so we we pray, and and there is this wonderful virtuous cycle of devotion to God that draws forth speech to God. Not only is it a prayer then that arises from God in devotion, but it returns to him in seeking his glory and reign. You'll know that, that rivers rise from a source and flow to a destination. So the the mighty River Tay, just a wee, um, well, more than a stone's throw down the street from where I'm speaking right now, uh, it comes from a source and flows to a destination. It rises uh, from near the summit of Ben-Louis all the way across near Oban, flows east, draining a lot of the highlands on the way, and then it discharges the greatest volume of all of Britain's rivers just up the coast uh, from us here. Now, the course of prayer is somewhat different to a mighty river like the Tay. For the source and destination of prayer are the same. A never-emptying well of worship of God, vocalised back to him in loving and believing speech, because to know him as he is, is then to speak to him as he is. So having addressed ourselves to him as father in verse 9, well, the first petition in verse 10 is all bound up with him. I I take verses 9 and 10 together as one request, that God's name be hallowed, that his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as in heaven. It's that line on earth as in heaven that, that binds all three of them together. And what we see here is that God's children are to be utterly oriented towards God's own glory and reign. As we live in a broken world, East of Eden and barred from his presence, other than through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we are asking him that one day this world would be as completely and experientially ruled by God as heaven itself is, the place where he dwells and reigns even now. So, to pray for God's name to be hallowed is to pray for it to be, and here's a clunky word, holied, literally, to to be made holy, to be sanctified, and to set apart. Now, this isn't to make God's name holy. His name already is holy, for he is the perfectly holy one. And his name throughout the Old Testament is absolutely hand in glove with his person. No, you see, when we pray for God's name to be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven, it's to pray that earth would echo in head and in heart and in hands the cry of the angels in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. It is to ask that all flesh would see him as he is and worship him as he is. That's why to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven is an extension of asking for his name to be hallowed. To long for and to ask that the rule of God, perfect in heaven and absolute in experience, be worked out here on earth. Because where God's name is perfectly hallowed, his kingdom is fully and uncontestedly established. You see, Jesus is explicit throughout Matthew's gospel that the kingdom has come through him. He is God's king. But he also is explicit that the kingdom itself will grow gradually until the day that he returns. And until that point, the kingdom will face opposition as people hear and respond to the God of the gospel. Some will believe, but some will reject. The kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus returns, not as the saving at that point, but as the judging king. So we, as believers who are waiting now for that day in the future, are to pray that it would be so. Finally, then, that is the meaning of the third petition. For God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven is to ask that nothing would happen outside his perfect and explicit will for all things to move according to his desire and decree, just as it is in heaven. Just imagine if you would for a moment with me then a world where the prayer of verses 9 and 10 is fully answered, a, a place where all people know the blessing of God where the divine glory of God is uppermost in all our minds, where in thought and in word and in deed, in seeking and doing his will, God's holiness is shared by all of his people, not only doing it ourselves, but having it done to us, not failing in doing his will, but perfectly living according to his plans. Now, that is where the world is headed, In the words of the prophet Habakkuk, this is the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And we are to pray now for that in faith, but with chastened expectation. Because ultimately, as we plug this prayer into the wider sweep of scripture, we know that this will come at the end when Jesus returns. This is not a prayer, therefore, to whip the believer now into a frenzy of action thinking that we can do this, that there are some who might teach that, that here is a prayer for us to to march out and and right the world. No, this is a, a prayer of humble dependence upon God, that increasingly, from now until the end of days, more and more people and more and more of our world would come under his will, serving Jesus as king and hallowing him in their hearts and lives. Ultimately, for us as we wait... This is a prayer that more and more people, through the gospel of the kingdom of God, would come into the kingdom of God and live in line with the kingdom of God. So I want to suggest that this prayer of devotion to God is a really practical prayer for us as waiting disciples It's a prayer for kingdom workers because this gospel will end with these men listening in being sent out into the world to make disciples of all nations. It's a prayer, therefore, for his church today to ask God and to live under him with his will ruling us. Jesus prays this prayer in perfection in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we're invited to pray it today arising from and returning to God knowing who he is and what he wants and so we respond in loving believing speech so prayer is one of total devotion to God naturally follows then that prayer is dependent upon God that's our second point this morning we pray in total dependence upon God now one of the great discussions we could have is is the simple question what is faith i want to argue that from matthew's gospel jesus is looking for people who respond to him in total dependence that that's a good way of understanding faith you see we've got some portraits of faith throughout the gospel There's a centurion who trusts in Jesus' authority in chapter 8, verse 10. There's the friends of the paralyzed man who, who show faith as they lower him down in front of Jesus, having hacked a hole in the roof. There's the bleeding woman who knows that if only she touches Jesus in chapter 9, verse 22, she will be healed. All of them, from different social and religious backgrounds and with different needs, have one thing in common. They cast themselves upon Jesus in various ways that they move out from themselves in dependence and surrender to Christ. That's profoundly counter to how we by nature are, because I think we're probably all naturally pretty me-centered in our vision of of the world. We we have a a personal solar system with, in my case, the planet of Sneddon at the center. But what we've seen throughout the sermon, what we've seen in chapter 6, what we've seen here in the prayer is the opposite, that God is at the centre and must be at the centre, consciously of the believer's life. And when he is there, well then of course we cast ourselves upon him in total dependence for all that we need, spiritually and physically. And that's why therefore prayer is like this. So verses 9 and 10, we're totally devoted to God. And in verses 11 to 13 the believer depends upon God for everything with him at the center of their orbit. Firstly, we pray for provision from God. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you were an Israelite hearing the mention of daily bread, in the background, unescapably, would be what's recorded in Exodus chapter 16, the feeding of Israel in the desert with manna, the bread from heaven. Each day in the desert... Bread fell and gathered as dew on the ground. Each day, the Israelites went out of their tents and collected exactly what they needed just for one day. Each day, other than on the Sabbath, on Saturdays, that fell for 40 years. Can you imagine that? Every day was an act of faith, taking God at his word that there would be enough. So imagine you're a family of five. You'd go out on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. And you would be ordered to collect two days' worth, trusting that your children would not go hungry. I take it that required real faith to take God at his word. Yet every day, rain or shine, war or peace, God provided exactly what they needed. It's exactly the same for us today. Give us this day our daily bread is a prayer of faith, of simple, humble dependence upon God, that he would give us what we need today to live for him physically and spiritually. We don't need to be embarrassed about the material aspect of that provision. Uh, What we'll see shortly in chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, is that God does not despise our practical material needs. Far from it. Don't be anxious, Jesus says, therefore, about food and clothing for tomorrow. Trust that your Father will provide But there is also a spiritual element here too. We'll see that in chapter 7 verses 1 to 11 where the resources that the disciple needs to live well with others will also be provided by the good father in heaven who gives us good gifts. And I imagine that many listening, though not all, will resonate more with that second aspect. Asking God to provide us with what we need spiritually. We're blessed in our context to live in a way where for most people, They're not worried about where their meal at the end of the day will be coming from. I'm conscious that there may well be some listening to this for whom that is not the case. And know that you too can pray this prayer with faith. And whether we worry about the physical or the spiritual, hopefully we can all see how this prayer breeds humility in us. Whatever we have comes from God's hands. And so we pray to him to keep on being generous, just as he is supremely generous to us in Jesus. If you are someone who's wrestling with with the spiritual reality of daily bread, of needing gifts from God to get through the day, I hope there is a clarifying comfort here for you. You see, each day of this, our stay in the world, we ask God to give us what we need, spiritual food to keep going on the pilgrim path for the Israelites back in the desert, the manna ended the very day they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. You know, The day will come for God's church when their faith shall be sight, when we will see Jesus in the true promised land of the new creation. But until that day, we ask God to feed us on his son by his spirit, what we need for today to live for him. And we said earlier that each of the first petitions of this prayer flow from God himself. Well, so it is with these dependent petitions for ourselves. And this time that they're arising not only from God, but from the heart of the truly blessed person. The, those in the Beatitudes at the start of chapter five. That The prayer for daily bread is the prayer of one who hungers, who is humble the blessed of the kingdom, depending upon God for provision and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Secondly, we pray in dependence upon God for forgiveness. You see this note stressed very strongly here in the prayer and it's echoing the the emphasis on forgiving others that has been right through the sermon in chapter 5 as well. Here our dependence is from a different angle, not provision for the needs that we have, but for the most profound spiritual issue that we face, forgiveness for our debts. The language of debts in verse 12 is not speaking in financial terms, but in terms of honor. The debts we owe God due to the way we have dishonored rather than hallowed his name. Forgiveness for the ways we've rebelled against his and resisted his kingly rule. The ways in which we've said my will and not yours be done. All of those things place us in his debt. and I want to stress, this isn't just a, a transactional or, or a cold word. This is just one of the many words the Bible uses to build up a, a palette of what collectively is named as sin. Now, Jesus makes clear that there's more than just dishonoring God in view here. You can see that in his editorial comment on this petition in verses 14 and 15. Striking, isn't it, that at the end of the prayer, what Jesus comments on is this one of forgiveness. And there he uses the language of of trespass in 14 and 15. That's a word that speaks of the way we deviate from God's perfectly upright standard and, and go twisted in what we want and what we do and what we say. Sin is a real issue. It is the most pressing need of God's people. And here we see that the believer is utterly dependent upon God for forgiveness. Only he can cancel the debt and restore us to the right way. I take it that this is a prayer that can be spoken by you, whether you are a believer in God now or not. This is a prayer for the one who has never trusted in Jesus Christ. For if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, your debts, your trespasses are not forgiven. And Jesus says you too can pray Forgive me my debts. Uh, It's a prayer for the one who's never trusted, but who will be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. He is, though, of course, primarily speaking to, to his disciples, those who already know him. And so this is a daily prayer for us as we walk in the kingdom path. We need to ask God for forgiveness in full knowledge of his fatherly care for us. We don't ask this fearing that our definitive salvation is in any way threatened. There are so many promises of God through Jesus Christ that in him, the believer has been forgiven and need not fear his judgment on the last day. But just as a son who has rebelled against his father asks out of love that he might forgive him, so we as believers ask that of God. We're not fearing the rod, not waiting for the, the smack, not cringing like a dog who's been discovered doing something vile and knows it's going to get a clip on the nose. No, humbly, penitently, yet confident in Christ and the love of the Father, we ask for forgiveness. We can pray it with confidence, knowing that he loves to wipe clean our transgressions. You'll notice, though, that Jesus makes a real point of setting alongside the forgiveness we receive from God with the forgiveness we give to others in the kingdom. Both the the vertical towards God and horizontal towards others aspects of forgiveness are in view. And Jesus shows that they are intimately linked, that they cannot, in fact, be pulled apart. And this makes sense, because what is the word for people who each call the same person father? Well, it is family. Family. Brothers and sisters, here is our elder brother Jesus showing us that just as we, sinning children, must depend on our father for forgiveness, so we must be those who forgive our sinner siblings. Because you see, the person who is unforgiving, to their family in Christ, yet cries out for forgiveness to their father in heaven, is in danger of the very hypocrisy that Jesus is guarding against all through the Sermon on the Mount. Because it would be to make a show of vertical piety, God, I'm so sorry, while neglecting the lived out reality of it. I forgive you for the ways you have sinned against me. It would show that the inward reality of forgiveness has not got purchase on our hearts. That's why Jesus makes it so clear in verses 14 and 15. Those sins for which we ask forgiveness, those those transgressions as children that aren't threatening final judgment but that can bring the displeasure of God upon us. Jesus says very clearly that we can have no expectation that those sins will be forgiven if we ourselves are nursing an unforgiving heart towards others. Now, don't mishear me. Jesus is not saying that if you are holding a grudge against a fellow believer, you are no longer a child of God. He is not saying that is something that loses you your salvation. Only God knows the heart. What he is saying is that as you listen to this right now, if you are not forgiving someone, if you are refusing to forgive somebody a wrong they have committed against you, then you can have no confidence that your own prayers for forgiveness are heard. It sounds very harsh, but it is consistent from Jesus. He said at the start of the sermon, blessed are the humble who don't lord it over others. In chapter 5, verse 7, it is the merciful who are blessed and receive mercy, for they know the mercy that they've been shown. We're to forgive even our enemies in verses 38 to 48 of chapter 5. How much more our family in Christ? And later in the gospel, in chapter 18, verses 23 to 35, there is the lengthy parable of the unforgiving servant who is harsh towards someone who is in his debt when he has just been forgiven an enormous debt by his master. Jesus takes unforgiveness really seriously. It is so important to him. Because God's children, we in Christ, the the servant citizens of the kingdom, are to be a community marked by forgiveness. And so we must depend on God for that in prayer and offer that to one another in patient, humble love. If this is putting a finger on something really specific to you, if you know that there is a relationship where You need to work for reconciliation but aren't sure. May I suggest two things to you? Pray. Ask your father in heaven to help you forgive others just as he has forgiven you. And secondly, don't carry that burden alone. Speak to someone. Why not get in touch with one of the elders here at St. Pete's or with someone in one of your home groups. A brother or sister you can talk this through with such that you can have reconciliation and offer forgiveness just as God calls you to do. For you see here's the petition of the broken-hearted and the mourning over sin. Here's the petition of the peacemaker who longs for right relationships, knowing their own imperfections and loving others. So we pray for provision, we pray for forgiveness. Finally, independence, we pray for protection. You see, the believer speaks to God as father in a world that is hostile to the kingdom of God. It's hostile, therefore, to the people of God. So here is the prayer of the persecuted running through the Beatitudes again. Here is the prayer of the one who, for righteousness' sake, will have their lives made at times terrible. See, this is not hypothetical for the early church. This was a reality for them. It comes up again throughout Matthew's Gospel. Jesus warning his followers of the hostile reception they will receive in the world. He sends them out as as lambs amongst wolves. It's not hypothetical either for God's people today. Though for us, I think here in our context, it's less of a threat to our Physical well-being that we will know of and pray for, I hope, brothers and sisters around the world who face genuine physical hostility, perhaps even now as you listen, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. I take it, though, that our own opposition we face in our 21st century Scottish context can sometimes be all the more spiritually deadly for the fact that it is physically less threatening. We experience the temptation of the evil one, We experience the contempt of the world around us. And so this is a prayer for us today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I mean, Jesus knew what it was to be tempted. Just before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been tested, tried by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. And interestingly, the same word is used of Jesus's experience, chapter 4, verse 1 as it is here, of what we are to pray against. So not just the experience of wrong desires, for that is not something Jesus ever had, but rather of the testing and trials that come from the evil ones seeking to lead us astray. And Jesus says, pray that you would be guarded, just actually as Jesus himself was guarded. We're here then praying, not fearing, that God would deliberately seek to lead us into sin. No, God is not the one who authors temptation for his will is not for us to do evil. Rather, in the face for us of our own evil and our own sin and weakness, we ask God in humble dependence to never lead us into situations where we test God himself and where we rebel against him. Rather, we ask for deliverance from evil itself generally or the evil one himself, Satan. See, that first generation in the wilderness, the ones who had the manna, well, they were told by Moses in Deuteronomy 8 that they were tested by God to know what was in their heart. And many of them in that first generation failed, all in fact. And our prayer is that in our own testing, whatever that may be, whatever you're experiencing now, we are not led into situations where we deny God God through the evil we experience and so here again is a prayer of total dependence upon God and Jesus' assumption is that if you're a disciple if you're a Christian listening to this a child of God then you will be someone who is praying while you're waiting for the kingdom to come devoted to him dependent upon him and asking that that kingdom would come in all its fullness in God's perfect timing. Now I take it as we close then, that this instruction from Jesus the Son on prayer to our Father will will fall on our ears and on our hearts in different ways. And that'll depend slightly on who we are currently and where we are in our walk with the Lord. I want to encourage all of us though, however we're listening to this, to not take Jesus' words figuratively here. This isn't only the DNA of prayer, although it is that, but actually it is literally a a prayer to be prayed as it is. Jesus doesn't offer this like a a mantra, like a Buddhist monk chanting to empty the mind, nor is it a prayer that is offered here as something with magical power in itself to be repeated on its own for devotional merit, like some expressions of, of Roman Catholic piety. Now, I want to suggest that this is a prayer to be prayed for it shapes us in the right habit of mind and life in relation to God. It's a bit like a a craftsman's chisel. With repeated strokes, a a craftsman will, will shape a piece of wood and inexorably groove it to the shape that he wants. Well, so these words will keep on schooling us, grooving our hearts to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. So if you're listening to this as one who is struggling to pray, because you're currently cold-hearted towards the Lord. Here is a powerful reminder of who God is and who we are in relation to him. I encourage you to meditate on his goodness, his holiness, his power, his provision, above all that he is your father in heaven who loves you. He stands ready to bless and to reward you. And so pray to him. There'll be some listening to this, though, whose hearts are not cold through sin but but who are struggling to pray through suffering born confusion in the words of the apostle paul in romans 8 so often we don't know what to pray for because the situation you face could be so perplexing so grievous so complicated you know those times when you simply can't discern what god's will is you don't know what's right what's best what even is next and that will be some listening to this could be looking around at the world around us, the chaos we see. could be the grief of the coronavirus, either through bereavement or through ill health or just through anxiety. You could be looking at the tragedy of social injustice or, or the personal situations of sickness and sorrow and battles of mental health that, that beset so many. Let me say that, that for the sufferer listening, you can pray as Jesus has taught you, with great comfort, simply setting yourself under God's mighty hand and asking that his will would be done and that he would give you the grace, the daily provision to bear that will, even when it runs counter to what you want or what you think is best. He is your father and you can speak to him accordingly. Finally, this might be falling on the ears of One who is proud in the Christian life. You could be listening to this and thinking, look, all is well. Life is good. Things seem fine. God is in his heaven. All is right with my world personally. And yet, secretly, your prayer life has gone quiet. You've dropped into feeling independent from God, thinking functionally that you don't need him that you can do this spiritual life on your own. Maybe you haven't found lockdown that hard. Maybe listening online fits in with a a busy schedule. Uh, You haven't missed too much the other people who can sometimes make life tricky. Well, for you then, even though it would never be declared that way, but if you are silent towards God, then it's a good marker that you're not valuing real relationship with him. Let me gently challenge you from this prayer. That here in a a small but easily vocalized way is a a pattern, a road map to return to him as your father. To remember that he is at the center of the universe and not you. That his goals and priorities are to shape your life and not your own. And that you need him for all that you have. Come back to him in prayer for he is your father in heaven who calls you to it and who loves to listen. Because this is the prayer ultimately of of the person who God wants us to be. Who know who we are in relation to him. Poor in spirit. Broken heartedly humble. Longing for the righteousness of God. And wanting to see his kingdom come in this world. Here are the words to pray. While we wait. While we serve. While we live. And while we love. So let's pray. Why don't we say this Lord's Prayer together as we close. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.